time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 59. Ray's favorite number, less 10. But we'll get there. The mighty, the almighty 69. <laughs> How are you today, Ray? <laughs> I am the opposite and yet the same of you i think we're both ready to go back to sleep this should be a cracking three hours yeah. and <laughs> it's going to be 37 degrees here today they say which is about 98 i think in the americans Fuck. uh and it's you know what week week three of spring that's wrong <laughs> very very fucking wrong we didn't really have a summer. It never got truly mm. miserably hot mm. like it did in the previous year. And now it's unseasonably warm for this time of the year. So global global warming affecting the environment, it's not real. No, it's not real. It's just, it's no, it's just, just the sun. This is what one of my Uber drivers told me the other day. I posted I posted this story on Facebook because this Uber driver, he was going off about, see, old white guy, you know, he's going off about same-sex yeah. marriage, the uh, plebiscite that we're having here at the moment. Then he said, right. oh, climate change, it's, it's all bullshit. <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> yeah, my brother. I got a brother, he's a scientist. He says it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's the sun. The sun just goes through changes. It's like a woman. And menopause. Yeah. And I said, uh, what uh, field of expertise is your brother, the scientist? Oh, he, Battery science? Testing. He said, uh-huh. literally said, I said, what's his, what's his field of expertise? Science? I said, yeah. All yeah, of yeah, it. But, the whole damn thing. Is he a climate scientist? Is he a biologist? Is he an astrophysicist? A whale sperm specialist. Give us. Some oh, he said. Yeah, he teaches 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 high school science. That's right, right. Well, I am going to therefore ignore ninety eight percent of the world's active climate scientists in favour of your high school teacher brother. Yep. Right. Anyway, um, I've, I've been saying like, I've got to start a new podcast where I just record my conversations with Uber drivers and put them out there because. Yes, there you go. That's yeah. a winner. I don't know how I get you in on it. I jump in the Uber and go, hey, can I just uh, just get a Skype in my mate Ray from Virginia? Just hold on a second. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Just wait. Or I could just bring a recording of you giggling and just play it in the background while I talk to them. There uh. you go. Same thing, really. As we were last time, uh, it's we're about a month out of Yalta. Yeah, we are. And shit's not going well. Basically, uh, Roosevelt is sending Stalin nasty letters over uh, Poland, over the treatment of American uh, prisoners that have now fallen into the hands of the Soviets. And uh, as we're going to see, it it, it didn't get any better, really. yeah. But as we saw last time, Stalin had decided uh, during this period, uh, there's tensions are escalating. He kind of decided to stop pushing so hard for German dismemberment, but to double down on Poland. Molotov, in his autobiography, wrote, Stalin often... Sub- <clears throat> 
what got Stalin often said that Russia wins wars but does not know how to avail itself of the fruits of victory. Russians fight magnificently but don't know how to conclude a peace. They are always passed by, never get their due. I don't know what fucking accent this is, but anyway. <laughs> but we will, we will, we will. But we will well, but we did well after this war because we strengthened the Soviet state. It was my main task as Minister of Foreign Affairs to see that we would not be cheated. In that sense, we did our best. And to my mind, our results were not bad. We were very worried about the Polish question and the question of reparations. We got what we needed, though they tried in every way to encroach on our interests, to impose a bourgeois government in Poland that would certainly have been an agent of imperialism. But we, Stalin and I, insisted on having at our border an independent but not hostile Poland. At the negotiations, and even before, disputes raged over the borders. The Curzon line, the Ribbentrop-Molotov line. <laughs> no one is named after me. It's very cool. Stalin said, call it what you please, but our border will be here. Churchill objected, but Lvov was never a Russian city. Ah, but Warsaw was, Stalin replied. Nice. Uh, I'm glad you read mm. that. I'm well, I was going to say he that was uh, taken from interviews with him in the mid to late seventies. That's Molotov's uh, view yeah. on it back then. Uh, bottom line is they want a, a, a non-hostile government in Poland. Yeah, and I, I think they've earned that considering everything that's happened over the last thirty, forty years. But I'm glad you read that because from from. What we've been going over so far, it makes it sound, or it seems, that Stalin is like, Poland is ours, end of discussion, we'll tell the West whatever they want to hear, we'll play the game, but this is a no-brainer, this is a non-starter, whatever. But it, it um, when you were saying that Molotov, that they were nervous, and that they were right, because the West was trying every trick they could possibly uh, think of to get, to, to crack that nut that was now going to be Soviet Poland, so... It, it's a it's a fresh it's a fresh perspective to see that they were nervous, but at the same time, Stalin had no intention uh, anything short of you know a physical violence of giving up any part of Poland. Yeah, and again, we have to remember that Poland was the gateway to Russia. It had been used twice in living memory to invade Russia. Uh, he, you know, Molotov said they wanted an independent Poland, quote unquote. Um, but not hostile. So we're, we, we're not going to annex it. We're happy to leave it as independent, but we just want to know that the government there is watching our back. Right, and we're watching theirs, yeah. And, and to make all of this worse, um, the three gentlemen who are supposed to be solving this issue, uh, let's see, Harriman, Molotov, and uh, Clark Carr for the British, uh, they are not getting anywhere in their on their discussions over Poland. And uh, this is getting back to Churchill. Churchill knows he can only do so much. So he rings up his good friend at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Mm. Yeah, so the first uh, foreign minister's Poland conference is going on in Moscow. It's just as you'd expect. Uh, it's just getting a big nyet from Molotov. <coughs> Everything the other guys try and suggest. So, yeah, so Frank, uh, with some urging from Pooh Bear, sends Big Joe a note. 
Uh, he basically says, look, the world is looking at us, Joe. If we don't make progress on this polis issue, people are, gee, they are going to put their hands on their hips. They're going to stomp their foot. They're going to harumph in a big way. And they're going to post about it on Facebook. It's going to be embarrassing. But I can just imagine Stalin's uh, reaction to that is, well, Russian people are not. So what people are you talking about? When you say the... When you say the people of the world, what do you mean? The people of the United States, this is not my problem. This is your this is no. your problem. You deal with your own people. This is not my problem. What you oh you might not win a fifth election as president. Oh no. What oh, too, too bad, bad for you, my friend. But for me at home, it's all good. Um He also, uh Frank brought up the issue of uh Romania said he was puzzled about why Stalin hadn't already killed all the vampires there. Stalin said, I don't know. <laughs> the communist Man, they were being led by right. Julius Caesar. We never realized he was a vampire, but now it all makes sense. It's all coming together. Now, Stalin, uh, Roosevelt actually said he didn't understand why the provisions of the Declaration on Liberated Europe didn't apply. In Romania. Remember in our last episode or recent one, the Russians' perspective on this was, well, we've already settled Romania, so the declaration doesn't apply. We don't need to get in and get involved and sort it all out. It's sorted. We sorted it. We put our people in there. It's all sorted. The declaration said, well, well, it's not sorted. We all need to weigh in. But, hey, we sorted it. It's sorted. It's all sorted. It's good. Don't worry about it. Move on. Nothing to see here. Post, post Post-sorted. Post sorted. Yeah, so FDR writes this letter. And and for FDR, this is a pretty terse letter, certainly compared to what he how he was describing Yalta just a month ago when he was talking to the American people. So he's talking about Poland, he's talking about Yugoslavia, he's talking specifically about the Lublin government, about this new government that's supposed to be formed. And yes, it's supposed to be formed based off of the current um current government there, but FDR is saying, look, in several times in the text of Yalta, we talked about a new government that doesn't seem to be happening, and he's actually just a, just a little bit getting in Stalin's face. Mm. And the letter was signed by Frank, but Pooh Bear was the real author. Yeah, He was right. bugging Frank to write this. Um, Frank saying, uh, back to Pooh Bear, you know, I'm not very well. I'm very sick. I'm trying to rest. Uh, and right. Churchill's like, shut up. You're younger than me, bitch. You're only 63. Write the fucking letter. Just s- sign this. I'm going to write. Yeah, throughout the entire month of March, Churchill is harassing uh, FDR. Finally, the last day of March, this letter's going to go out. Because FDR, cause, excuse me, because Churchill knows that on his own, he has no authority talking about Yugoslavia and barely about Poland with uh, Churchill, uh, with uh, Stalin because of the percentages deal. I mean, any conversation between Churchill and Stalin would pretty much go something like Churchill saying, Marshal Stalin, I have to point out, and then Stalin cut him off and go, Greece. It is imperative that we, Greece. And the world is watching us, Greece. That's all Stalin has to say, and the conversation is over. I actually have a recording of Churchill and Roosevelt. Uh, nice. You know, Churchill pushing Roosevelt to write this letter. Here's one. Ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. 
It's against regulations. I don't want to go with the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. You think I'll go for a walk? You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look. Isn't there something you can do? I feel happy! I feel happy! Ah, oh, thanks very much. Touch off. See you on Thursday. Right! right. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, well, it was the opposite. Yeah, it was, Roosevelt was actually saying, I don't feel very well. Churchill's like, yeah, you're fine. Shut up. You'll be around forever. You'll outlive all of us. You'll see. That's right. Try mm. all those cigars in your holder. You're going to live forever. Yeah. So pick your favorite metaphor. Uh, the percentages deal uh, came to bite Churchill on the ass. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, whatever. But now because of uh, his deal, Churchill's hands are tied. And he's the one that's really pushing this because FDR is a little bit more of a realist, which we'll get into later. But there is not much this d- dynamic duo can do. Yeah, Churchill knew that if he wrote Stalin a letter... Uh, and brought up the whole Romania thing, Joe would just tell him to go fuck himself. Um, because, yeah, it's toilet yeah, paper. Yeah. Thank you for the toilet I paper. I gave you a free hand in Greece, even to beat up the Greek communists. Don't don't right. tell me what to do with Romania. Look, percentages agreement, remember? Here it is. Right. Um, so Joe took a week to answer Frank's letter. Uh, so we're talking first, end of the first week of April. 1945, right. and his, his email, his email, yeah, his email basically, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, what can you do? Uh, and laid the blame for the lack of progress in the Polish conference on Harriman and Clark Kerr. He said that his understanding at Yalta was that the new government would be based on the old government. He said that Harriman was trying to shoehorn in exiles who either didn't even recognize the Yalta decisions or were unfriendly to the USSR. Yeah, and they just, there's just no way, there's just no way that can be allowed to happen because, I, I mean, when you, when you agree to something like the new government that has yet to be formed will be based roughly on the old government, to Stalin, that's like saying, I'm the winner, I win, it's going to be my way. It might not look the same, but I'm going to win. Why are you bitching at me now? Why are you trying to change things now? We've already agreed on this, and I'm going to make it happen. So he, I don't know if he's getting frustrated or not, but I think, he, I think he's okay with this being dragged out because the longer that it takes, uh, he can more solidify the area. So I think Stalin, is he's pointing out some very accurate points, but I think he's okay dragging this thing oh, out. Oh, I think dragging it out is absolutely his strategy here. Yeah. Like uh, once... It took a week to reply to the president. Oh, my God. He's very busy. Um, because as we've talked about endlessly during the Yalta conference... What matters here is boots on the ground. Stalin has them in Poland. The other guys don't. So they can talk and cry and whine and bitch and moan for all they like. Unless they're willing to send in troops into Poland to remove his guys, there's nothing they can do. And he knows they don't have the stomach for that at this particular juncture. So he'll just drag out the negotiation. And this is a... This is a negotiating tactic that if you read any modern book on negotiating skills, that's one Mm. of the things that they will tell you to do. If you know your opponent 
has a timeline that they have to leave. That they have pressing things like they've they've travelled to you or they 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 are have things they have to leave to go to do so they have a deadline in terms of the negotiations or they have different pressures that that are building on them and the longer this thing drags on then you drag it on as long as you possibly can. Stalin, who is the master of negotiation, had obviously given instructions to Molotov just drag it out, man, long as you can. They they yeah. they've come to visit us. They're in our part of the world it's uh march april still probably pretty cold in moscow and uh mm-hmm. they're eating moscow food russian food applying it with vodka eventually you know they'll either give in or we'll get what we want not only do the westerners not have boots on the ground but they are not allowed to because as we've seen they've tried to bring over <clears throat> excuse me some of the poles from london and they are not being allowed entry into it because again stalin is not going to change the equation that is working so well for him but then again he did in this letter suggest a compromise he said look let's bring oh, eight polish politicians to moscow for the conference five from poland three from london let them be part of the discussions, the consultations on the new government. And uh, we'll see what happens. Like, you know, you bring three guys. We bring five, you bring three. Our guys are already the government, so that's kind of fair. They, they deserve a couple more right. than yours. And they can vote on it. And they can vote on it. That's right. Or they can at least have their say uh, as to what's going on. But... You know, I don't think he's just out and out telling the Brits and the Americans to go fuck themselves because he knows mm-hmm. he needs to keep them on side, at least the Americans. He wants the Americans on side. He doesn't want to completely burn the relationship here. Um, so he's just uh, trying to look like he's trying, but on the other hand, dragging it out as long as possible, hoping they just sort of get, get tired and give in. And his strategy yeah. works, at least for a while. And not only that, but uh, Stalin thinks that this is such a good idea. And also in his communique to FDR, he includes, the, you know, this same, same type of formula in general terms should also be applied to the government of Yugoslavia. But as Churchill would point out that they had the communists had the Western ministers so outnumbered that that was practically just uh, throwing in the towel as well, so, which is exactly what Stalin wants. But like you said, he's talking, he's discussing, he's debating, he's coming up with ideas with supposed compromises. He is going through the motions of trying to work this out, even though he has no intention of doing so. Now, Frank never replied to Joe's letter, but he did write to Churchill and told him that he wanted to minimize the tension with Moscow. He said, look, problems are going to arise every day. There's always going to be one issue, this issue, that issue. We'll straighten them out over time, just like we did with the burn incident. Mm-hmm. But this isn't one of the big issues here. This is, in the whole scheme of things, this is a minor issue. We've got to keep our eye on the prize, the prize being right. Soviet participation in the United Nations, Soviet participation in the war against Japan, and what happens with Germany breaking up, controlling uh, Germany. They're the big three things that the big three dudes need to really worry about. Everything else, look, I'm willing to put up a fight. I'm willing to do what I need to do to make it look like I put up a fight. But really, these are the three things. In terms of the three things that are going to 
Well, the, 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 the one big thing that he hoped was going to lead to 50 years of international peace was the UN, and they had to have the Soviets in that. Uh, the other thing was keeping Germany down for a while, uh, stop mm-hmm. Germany causing trouble in Europe. He needed the Soviets' help there, and he obviously needed the Soviets to help, he thought, uh, with ending the war with Japan or might need their help anyway. So uh, these are the big three things. Romania, Poland, eh, you know, they're kind of nice-to-haves, but not absolutely must-haves in, in Roosevelt's book. So he kind of tells Churchill to take a chill pill. He said, uh, just watch Netflix and chill, dude. <laughs> I mean, but you're absolutely right. As long as the East and West are talking, even if they disagree, even if they yell at each other, even if they come up with your mama jokes, <laughs> the point is they're talking. There's not going to be a future war. Uh, Germany's going to be kept down. This is what everybody wants. So again, no war. Germany's down. Everything else is, is much smaller potatoes. And FDR's right. He goes, look, compared to all the other things, this is not a big deal. However, he ends his communicated Churchill. We must be firm and our course thus far is correct. So he's like, let's be tough when we can. And there's times when Stalin's going to be tough with us and it's probably going to balance out. Having said that, FDR is getting frustrated with the Soviets. He's getting frustrated with Stalin personally, but he knows he has no other option. What else could you do but but continue to talk to Stalin? There are no other players. There are no other avenues to pursue. Yeah, well, I mean, what are the tools that the Americans have in their arsenal to convince the Soviets to help them? I mean, they can either attack them or they can... Threaten economic sanctions. Uh, they can bribe them, uh, mm-hmm. but again, he knows that he needs them on board. He needs them on board for the UN and all those other things. So, I don't know. Uh, maybe he could have tried bribing them. Maybe he could have offered them you know, billion dollars uh, just to let them save face in Poland by putting some of the exiles in. Uh, I don't know if that would have worked. I- I just get the sense that at this point in Stalin's life and everything that's happened, money is not that important. He needs security. He needs safety. He's got uh, people working. They might be getting paid crap or they might be getting paid with money that's practically worthless. But he's got a huge army. He's got a ton of factories producing more war material every day. Um, And so, yeah, I just don't think money is it for him. It's all about security and what's going to come next. So they could have tried, but I don't think he would have gotten very far with Stalin with the type of person that he is and where he's at right now. I think you're right. I think... His priority is keeping Russia safe. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's his and that's, his, that's job. his job, one of his jobs. Yeah. Now, while all this was going on, the NKVD were rounding up the leaders of the Polish underground and deporting them. Damn. Because the last thing you want when you're trying to implement a uh, friendly communist government in Poland is people that may not want a friendly Polish government causing trouble. Right. So according to reports that the London Poles uh, were receiving from back home, the NKVD deported 5,000 Poles from Horodna, 10,000 from Bialystok, and 76,000 from Poznan. 
Damn. They weren't going after the underground's leadership. They were going after the underground itself. And this was happening on both sides of the Curzon line in eastern Poland. So again, Stalin knows he owns his territory. He is de facto ruler. He can do whatever he wants. And he is. He's doing exactly. He's cleaning house. So these people can't give him any trouble when he ushers in whenever this new Polish government. Well, he knew that they, the underground had caused trouble for the Nazis. So it makes right. sense that they'll probably cause trouble for the Soviets as well. So, yeah, you've got to get rid of the troublemakers. This is, <laughs> And this has been Stalin's policy, as we know, back home in the Ukraine for the last 20 years he's been in power. Get rid of the troublemakers. They hold, they hold you back. They just right. slow things down. Got to get rid of the troublemakers. Now... He was, though. You said he wasn't going after the leadership. Yeah, he also went after the leadership, um, and he was sneaky <laughs> about it, too. Is this a Macedonia dinner party it story? It is. It is a bit like that, yeah. <laughs> or it's a bit like uh, uh, Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. You know, you, they invite you to a special party. You're going to be made a made man. You end up with two to the back of the head. Um, the NKVD reached out to the leaders of the Polish underground uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and the Polish underground, obviously, these are the, the guys that, were, uh, that, that went underground, members of the Polish army, civilians who went underground uh, when the Nazis uh, and the Soviets had control of Poland to, in the early days of mm-hmm. the war and were fighting back. Um, the Polish Home Army, as they had been known since uh, the latter few years. Um, So the NKVD reached out to the leadership of the Polish underground and invited them to a meeting to discuss the future, the altar agreements. Let's work this out. Yeah, let's just have some tea, some cake. We'll figure it all out. Yalta is finally kicking in the the contents of yalta are finally kicking in they're going to get together they're going to discuss things so they can work together and move forward forming a new government this is inspiring yeah now the leader of the polish underground general leopold okuliki uh mm-hmm. had already disbanded the home army before this happened he, he figured that uh the home army just the existence of it would be perceived as a threat to the soviets so he didn't want that. So he'd already disbanded it. He'd given orders. That's it. Thanks very much. We're a wrap. Everyone go home. Good work. <laughs> Thanks for everything. And uh, he didn't want to go to this meeting. He absolutely believed this was a trap. Uh, it's a trap. But he uh, was basically ordered to go by the deputy prime minister of Poland, who, of course, was a communist and probably knew what was going on. So uh, when he, when Okuliki and the other 15 leaders turned up for this meeting with the NKVD, they were promptly arrested and taken to Moscow for trials. Yeah. This is in March of 1945. And for, um, for the general, he's already been arrested once yeah. by the NKVD. In January 1941, he was imprisoned and tortured in several different Soviet prisons. He's eventually going to be released when the um, Germany, Germans uh, attack Soviet Russia. And he's going to go back and fight. He's going to fight for the, uh, for the uh, Polish army. He's going to fight for the underground. He's going to be, become the man in charge. He's going to rise to the ranks resisting 
Nazi Germany for years, and yet it avails him nothing when he's arrested in March of 45. He's going to be put on trial along with the other 15 for some uh, incredible accusations. I'd like to point out to listeners, when Ray is saying he is going to, he means he did yeah. Uh, before yes. his second arrest. In, in, Past in between tense, those two tense. arrests. Yeah, you get confused. I don't, with all I don't things, tense yeah. very much. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't tense. You know, it's it, it, people might think that it's a bit of an um, uh, impediment to uh, being a historian, not to be able to tell the difference between past and future, but no, <laughs> you don't let that get in the way. You don't let your, That's you what... don't let your height or your inability to tell past and future stop you, and I admire that about you, Ray. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. The trials that uh, these 16 uh, were put through were conducted by Vasily Ulrich. 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 I guess. I don't know how they do it in Russia. Ulrich, who was the judge who presided over the Moscow show trials in the 30s. So you know you're going to get a fair trial when uh, <laughs> Big Vasily <laughs> is on the bench. Man. I thought you. I thought you said you know you're going to get a really good uh, entertainment when when he's on the bench because yeah he did the show trials from the 30s completely made up laughing stock but it carried the force of law and that's all Stalin carried. Yeah, the guys on trial weren't laughing. No. So all of these 16 Polish leaders were accused of organizing anti-Soviet activities, sabotage, and terror directed against the Red Army. Now that's probably true. They probably were. In 1940, 1941, right. before uh, Barbarossa and Russia had to change. I just rem- remember that uh, the as a result of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, the Russians and the Nazis split Poland like a like a like a ten dollar a night whore split them right up the middle. God. I don't know. Oh God! It's bringing back back Brisbane. For me. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I mean, I mean, but in, but on the but because they'd spent from June twenty second, nineteen forty one, until this moment fighting against the Germans. In a lot of ways, these were these were ludicrous um, accusations. But again, it doesn't matter because they are all going to be charged with it, and they are going to be found guilty. Yeah. Now, uh, Okuliki was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He died in prison 18 months later. Some sources I read said he was murdered. Others said that he died during surgery uh, as a result of a hunger strike and a twisted bowel. Okay, damn. Either way. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah, he died on December 24th, 1946. It doesn't last very long. And as I, you can imagine, the other 15 eventually went the same way as he did. But many years later, American President Donald Reagan, which is how it was written on a Polish website that I read, <laughs> Donald okay. Reagan. The fuck, I missed that one. Where did he fit in? Uh, in 1981, <laughs> Donald Reagan awarded Okuliki the... Award of award for merit, uh, something like that. Some very very high right. uh, award uh, uh, from the United States, and he's he's considered a hero in Poland today. But it was sort of a a sad ending for a man who uh, fought to defend Poland from both the Soviets and the Nazis uh, during World War Two. Yeah, and World War One. By the way, he was and- active in World War One too. 
Absolutely. And uh, Stalin's not done. He's going after the uh, underground. He's going after the, the home army. He's going after the leadership. But he is not yet done um, giving Poland the facelift that it needs to enter its future with Soviet Russia right next to yeah. it. Yeah. Now, that well, Poland wasn't the only group that Stalin was giving a facelift to. He's also giving a facelift to the Ukrainian Catholic Church on the other side of the Curzon line. Now, uh, well, I want to talk a bit here, Ray. I didn't give you a warning of this, but I want to talk a little bit about the Soviets and religion. Now, the, okay. the Ukrainian Catholic Church was under the jurisdiction of Rome, the Vatican, even though uh, you know they they sort of had some connection to the Orthodox Church, uh, but they 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 were mostly Catholic. There was there was a little bit of right. to and fro there, but they were under the jurisdiction of Rome, even though they're in uh, the Soviet Union. Now, in April 1945, uh, Stalin had the NKVD arrest the head of the Ukrainian mm. Catholic Church and his entourage, as well as all of the bishops. They were sent to the Gulag, and most of them didn't survive. Damn. Now, if you know anything about Soviet communism, you know that it rejects religion in all its forms. Mm -hmm. Now, Marx himself had somewhat of a complex view about religion. On one hand, he saw it as a mechanism of the subjugation of the proletariat, subjugation of the working class by the bourgeois. Um, but at the same time, he also saw religion as a form of protest by the working classes against their poor economic conditions. He wrote, Religious suffering is, at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. The criticism of religion is, therefore, in embryo, the criticism of that veil of tears of which religion is the halo. Criticism has plucked the imaginary flowers on the chain, not in order that man shall continue to bear that chain without fantasy or consolation but so that he shall throw off the chain and pluck the living flower. The criticism of religion disillusions man so that he will think, act, and fashion his reality like a man who has discarded his illusions and regained his senses so that he will move around himself as his own true son. Religion is only the illusory son which revolves around man as long as he does not revolve around himself. Ooh, I like that. You're fucking right, Marx. Yeah. yeah. So Marx wanted to get rid of religion so people would focus on real solutions to their problems, not just resign themselves to the present suffering and hope for relief in the afterlife. 
Mm-hmm. Which is my main uh, criticism and issue with religion too. People have often said to me, "Oh, they're not hurting anyone. Leave them, let them alone. They're not hurting you." Uh, well, I, I think they are. I think religion tends to dumb people down. It and it tells people in an indirect way, if not a direct way, not to worry about the the circumstances of their life today because they're going to get their reward when they die. And therefore, we don't have those members of the population, like billions of people on the planet today who are actively worshipping one religion or another, that if we could get them to focus on fixing the real fucking problems that we have now, maybe we could get them fixed. But if they're all thinking, oh, well, it doesn't matter because when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and it'll be good then, then where's the sense of urgency? Where's the imperative to fix the problems Today, so I think they are dangerous. It is, religion is a threat to all of us because it sucks uh, intellectual energy and uh, work out of the human race uh, by, you know, feeding people these illusions. Right, and and, and uh, to um, to add to that, and you're right, not only that, but they're also hurting themselves. Like I work with a lot of people who are religious. Almost something bad almost happens. They say God is great. If something bad happens, they say God's will. So they're not even trying to cope. They're not even trying to deal. They're not even trying to process. They're not even trying to learn from all these little things that happen, good and bad. They're just throwing it up to God and they're moving on with their life. It's, uh, yeah, self-delusion. group of highly trained surgeons cure them of some illness and they thank yeah. God. Thank you for your prayers. Really? Really? <laughs> Well, I've got, I mean, there's two of the doctors that are very religious, and I just want to walk up to them and go, look, you're educated. I mean, could you explain to me how you believe? But I don't because I want to keep my job at least for a little longer. Maybe that's how I'll go out when I decide the time. I'll just go up and just start asking inappropriate questions of the doctors. (laughs) Yeah, good one. Record that. We'll put it out as a show. (laughs) Now, uh, Lennon was highly critical of religion too, but... In his book he, uh, about religion, he says, um, Atheism is a natural and inseparable part of Marxism, of the theory and practice of scientific socialism. Religion is the opium of the people. This saying of Marx is the cornerstone of the entire ideology of Marxism about religion. All modern religions and churches, all and of every kind of religious organizations, are always considered by Marxism as the organs of bourgeois reaction, used for the protection of the exploitation and the stupefaction, no, stupefaction of the working class. But while he was critical of religion, Lenin also specifically made a point of not including it in his ideological goals, like removing it. In uh, our program, he wrote, but under no circumstances ought we to fall into the error of posing the religious question in an abstract, idealistic fashion as an intellectual question unconnected with the class struggle, as it is not infrequently done by the radical Democrats from among the bourgeoisie. It would be stupid to think that, in a society based on the endless oppression and coarsening of the worker masses, religious prejudices 
could be dispelled by purely propaganda methods. It would be bourgeois narrow-mindedness to forget that the yoke of religion that weighs upon mankind is merely a product and reflection of the economic yoke within society. No number of pamphlets and no amount of preaching can enlighten the proletariat if it is not enlightened by its own struggle against the dark forces of capitalism. Unity in this... <coughs> sorry. Unity in this really revolutionary struggle of the oppressed class for the creation of a paradise on earth is more important to us than unity of proletarian opinion on paradise in heaven. Damn. No wonder he had a big head. <laughs> so Lenin's position is, look, yes, religion, bad, but you can't just tell people to stop believing and expect them to stop believing. Right. That's not going to work. You have to educate them. You can't just go, right, that's it. Religion's done. Everyone move along. Yeah. In their book, The ABC of Communism, Bukharin and Probazensky, uh, who were early leaders of the Bolsheviks, but then got executed during the Great Purge, spoke out strongly against religion too, but also put huge emphasis on nonviolence towards the religious. They wrote, communism is incompatible with religious faith. Faith? Faith. Communism is incompatible with religious faith. But the campaign against the backwardness of the masses in this matter of religion must be conducted with patience and considerateness as well as with energy and perseverance. The credulous crowd is extremely sensitive to anything which hurts its feelings. To thrust atheism upon the masses and in conjunction therewith to interfere forcibly with religious practices and to make mock of the objects of popular reverence would not assist but would hinder the campaign against religion. If the church were to be persecuted, it would win sympathy among the masses for persecution would remind them of the almost forgotten days when there was an association between religion and the defense of national freedom. It would strengthen the anti-Semitic movement and in general it would mobilize all the vestiges of an ideology which is already beginning to die out. Mm. I mean, you're right. If you if you try to persecute or tell someone to quit following their religion, that's like telling a 16-year-old girl to quit going down on the quarterback every time the team wins. If you tell them no, they're just going to want to do it more because that's human nature. Mm. And that's why we tell them no, uh, because we are all quarterbacks and we're like, no, because we want them to double down, right? Double down on the going down. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. But yeah, you, you can't tell someone to give up something. It, it will have the exact opposite effect. And, and these guys realize that. That was very crafty of them. Well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't put it as crafty. I would say it's very sensible of them. They're, these guys understood well, yeah. that uh, these, these, these were students of human nature. Like, despite what I think the popular um, uh, sentiment is towards Marx and Lenin and guys like, well, I don't think the general public knows much about Bukharin, but... Uh, right. uh, these were deeply intelligent guys who thought long and hard for decades about the human mm -hmm. condition, the human struggle. Uh, they, they understood that you couldn't just snap your fingers and get rid of religion, but at the same time, they knew religion was a bad thing, and it had they had to let it die out. They had to, and, and you had to do it by education. You had to do it by 
educating right. people, getting them involved in the struggle. And, of course, that's what we've found throughout most of the world, the United States being somewhat of an anomaly in this. But the more educated people become around the world and the more economic stability and freedom that they have, the more atheistic they become. Uh, that has been the general trend uh, around the world in the last hundred or so years. Again, the United States, for a variety of reasons that we will explore as the series goes on, because um, it's tied in with the Cold War in many ways, uh, and also tied in very closely to the communist view of religion. Uh, um, you know, the, America is sort of, from the 50s onwards, is sort of uh, connected anti-communism with religious fervor and mm-hmm. uh, and that's led to generations of uh, very very religious Americans where it was kind of dying out in the US by itself I think up until sort of World War two right and, and just to add on uh, when I was saying crafty I was certainly comparing this um, more passive form of trying to get you know to educate the people away from this versus say something like the Spanish Inquisition, where they were going to beat, torture, kill to try to get someone to change their way. So I just thought it was very intelligent of them to recognize this and to realize there had to be a different route in order to lead these people away as opposed to forcing them away from thinking about God, the Trinity, and all that good Mm. stuff. So this may have had something to do with Stalin's uh, treatment of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, but there was probably a bigger issue uh, at this time, that that caused the Catholics to have a particularly bad place in Stalin's little black book. The Pope at the time, Pope, 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 the Pope, fuck, the Pope at the time, Pope Pius the Twelfth, mm-hmm. had famously done a deal with Hitler uh, in the early stages of World War Two, the Concordat that he struck with Hitler, and. More importantly, perhaps, he was a virulent anti-communist. Yeah, and he, and he uh, ne- never, never missed an opportunity to point that out. And so Stalin is going to have a lot of precedent when it comes to dealing with this guy. And no, so when he tries to muck about in um, Poland, Stalin's already going to be able to go, okay, I know exactly what you're up to, and I will crush this, because I have to. So I think we'll leave this episode here, Ray, before we get into Pope Pius. Um, oh. because, right. uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, I know we are oh, ending nice on one. a high pro- Yeah, virtual high five. Before we go, uh, let me read all of our new reviews. Well, we don't have any. Okay, so we have no new reviews. Yeah, obviously no one wants a coffee mug. Bastards! Uh, Got a few new heroes, DEFCON 1 heroes, subscribers to thank. Gary Luckett, Tali Kellum-Pearson, Bob Compare, Jofer Kaburbo, and uh, Ninandruna Wilsobashoni. Probably mispronounced all of those names. I apologize, everybody. But thank you for subscribing (laughs) to the show. Hope you you enjoy it. And uh, we will be back next week talking more about Nazis, Popes, Catholics, and, um, yeah, FDR on his deathbed. An iron curtain.
extended across the continent.